stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. I was born in Sri Lanka. When I was about two years old, my parents made the journey that many young Tamil people do and migrated to Australia. From 1983 to 2009, Sri Lanka was in the throes of a civil war, a major factor in my parents' decision. Two years later, my mum returned briefly with my sister and I, but then it was a while before any of us would go back to Sri Lanka. Tamil people were a persecuted minority during the war, and even after its official end, my parents were more interested in focusing their time and money on their life in Sydney. For me and my sisters, spending most of our lives in Australia meant not feeling a particularly strong connection to Sri Lanka. It's the experience of many immigrant children. No matter how much culture was imbued into our lives, Sri Lanka could not be called home. Then, in summer of 2019, our family made our great return. We had an incredible time walking through the village my dad grew up in, shopping in Colombo, trekking through tea fields and more. But despite visiting many exciting landmarks and having delicious culinary experiences, if you asked any of my family what their trip highlight was, the answer was people. It turns out that seeing cousins, friends, old teachers, neighbours and more of the Sri Lankan community was what made Sri Lanka feel like home. For me personally, going to Sri Lanka reminded me of how precious my Sri Lankan Tamil culture is. Regardless of where those of us in the diaspora are living, we share a connection to our homeland. In our first story, Rosalie shares her exciting life as a dancer touring internationally and the events that lead her to return home. Um, I grew up in Yirkala and Nulumboy, and just to put in context where I came from, we have one roundabout. We don't have any traffic lights, we have one Woolies. Um, and in 2003, I moved to Sydney to pursue a career in dance. And I graduated in 2005 and promptly had no work. So I created my own little dance company and we do corporate gigs here, there and everywhere and hired different dancers from around the place. And then things didn't kind of pick up until around 2010. It was a pretty hard vlog. Um, I did some gigs at the Royal Easter Show and I remember I danced once in horse poo, which was, <laughs> Rosie, you've really made it. Uh, so in 2010, I then got invited by the John Butler Trio to come on tour as their nanny, and I got to go overseas for the first time ever by myself, and for the first time ever to America, and I remember just everything being so big. The sideworks were so big. The streets were really big, the food, the drinks, like everything was like supersize me, you know, like whatever. And uh, I had a really amazing time, and it was my first taste of being on tour and living the tour life. And in 2010, 
I got invited to be a part of a beautiful children's theatre show called Saltbush, Children's Cheering Carpet. And we've been all over the world. So we've been to South Korea, India, uh, Paris, Scotland, New York, uh, Japan, uh, China. So um, it was pretty amazing that I got to be a part of this. And my whole dream when I was a kid was you know, when I'd have my little speaker outside the principal's office at Normboy Primary School and I'd be playing Madonna's True Blue Baby, I Love You. I was saying, like, and doing these like routines with all the girls and stuff. Was like, one day I'm going to be performing in New York City. And I got there. <laughs> Thank you. But by the time I got there, I was so tired. I was so exhausted, I was completely burnt out. And I tried to pinpoint when my burnout really started to happen, and I think it happened three years before that. And it was at this time where I had booked a solid three months of work. And so I was rehearsing for a dance show called Brilliant, and we did that for four weeks, and then we toured that in Sydney and in Melbourne. And then straight after I finished that, I flew back to the Northern Territory and event coordinated NAIDOC celebrations, the 50th anniversary of, or 50th celebration of the Yirrkala Bark petitions and the Yirrkala church panels. So I did that for a few weeks, flew back to Sydney, had one night's sleep, flew to Paris, did shows at the Musée du Quai Branly. Uh, after that, flew back to Sydney, and the same morning that I arrived in Sydney, I got on a domestic flight, flew back to Yirrkala, finished off my gig, um, event coordinating the NAIDOC Week celebrations. Finished that, flew back to Sydney, had one night's sleep, flew to in, um, India. Pretty exhausting. So we got to India and we were doing this show, Saltbush, in a new suburb, and the suburb was called Noida, and it was just outside of New Delhi, and it was just basically concrete, dust, and shanty towns all over the place. Like, I actually literally saw people taking a shit on the side of the road. It was full on. And the theatre was being built in the new school in the atrium part, and at the start of the show, I was doing my stretches, I was getting ready, I picked up this weird thing that I knew belonged to the rigging of the lights, and I was like, oh, okay, that needs to go there. I'll, I'll go and put it there. And I went and put it on there, and I got this massive electrical shock through my body to the point where it actually pushed me back at about a metre. And in my head, I had thought about this young boy who had passed away recently and was in the news. He'd travelled to Indonesia, he was walking past a building that had been renovated and he just briefly touched this brick wall and he got electrocuted and died. And so that went into my head. And then I realised where I was and I felt unsafe and then I went into complete shock. And so I ran up and down the target, shaking my hands and saying, I've been shocked, I've been shocked. And then sat down on the ground and started bawling my eyes out and I couldn't stop crying. And my beautiful producer at the time came over and was like, that's it, we're stopping the show, we're getting out of here, we're not gonna continue with this. And his, he was so concerned, but I wanted to be like the absolute consummate professional, you know? I was like, whoever gets the opportunity to go to India to be able to dance? Hardly anybody. Certainly not someone from Yirkal, I don't know, like, do you know what I mean? And so I was like, no, 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 it's okay. 
just give me half an hour and we'll continue. And so we did that show and it was really great. But the weird thing is, is what happened was I went into complete survival mode. My body, everything, I don't, something in my head shifted. It was really bizarre. We, I finished the tour, we went to the Taj Mahal. You know, I experienced India, not the way that I wanted to, obviously. Um, and then I went back to Sydney and then I got to decompress and try to sleep and get over jet lag, which didn't really happen. So I basically went for about a week without any sleep. And it's funny what lack of sleep can really do to you. And it's funny what nearly dying can do to you mentally. At one point, I thought aliens were going to come and, you know, take me away. That was really interesting. <laughs> um, and, you know, I tried to do everything right, try and take melatonin, try and get sleep, do, uh, get vitamin D, um, eat properly, exercise and all that sort of stuff, but it took a really long time. And it was actually the start of a really bad period in my life where for three years I went into a deep depression uh, where I was on autopilot. I would wake up and I'd go to work and I'd be doing these fabulous shows and I'd be so fabulous doing this amazing stuff and being, you know, doing what I wanted to do. But every morning I'd wake up and I'd say in my head, I wish I'd walk out that door and some truck would come along and just hit me because I don't want to be here. And so, a couple of years ago, I realised that it was time that I needed to start looking after myself and home was calling. So, you know, I got to New York, I got to do what I wanted to do and at the end of it, that was the price that I paid mentally and emotionally and spiritually and I knew that I had to go home. So last year I said, I'm going to stop. I need to stop everything. And I made the decision and my mum came and collected me in Sydney which was really wonderful, and took me home. So I've been home since last year, August. I have this really great job now. I have a full-time job with full-time pay. Oh my God, <laughs> it's fabulous. <laughs> I have security. I met someone, beautiful man. <sighs> you know that cliched thing? <laughs> you know that cliched thing that they say, oh, uh, you know, you know when you know, and my single self is like, what the fuck does that mean? I don't fucking know what you're like. <laughs> but ladies and gentlemen, I would like to say that I know. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so thank you very much, and thanks for having me. Go Malung Festival, Gary and Jess. That story was told by Rosalie Pearson at Spun, a live storytelling night held in Darwin. Up next, Laurie talks about growing up in Darwin and travelling the world, somehow always skirting the one place that had broken her father's heart. Hi. I'm going to start my journey into the 90s and it, with, with something a little bit like this. You ready? And then there's a voice, 1990s, time for goo, 19... And there's this thumping dance beat underneath. Acid house track. 
Guru Josh, Infinity. Anyone? Anyone? Yeah. yeah. Big in 1990. So I'm just going to take you a step back. I'm going to take you to 1989, New Year's Eve. No, 89.90. <laughs> I'm a 14-year-old kid sitting in my room listening to the radio. Uh, I don't think Triple J was quite on air just at that point, a bit later in the year. But I'm sitting there listening to the radio and I'm not allowed to go to any New Year's parties or anything like that. I'm turning 15 in a couple of weeks' time, but Dad didn't let me go out. Anyway, a few things had led up to this moment of contemplation in the previous six to 12 months. I'd been in year 10 in 89. And one of the first things that, that was a surprise for me or something that, that was significant for me was my dad let me go to the amphitheatre to see my favourite band. Now, this was pretty cool because up until then, nighttime activities for me were restricted to blue light discos and school socials at the driver high gym. So, to be able to go to the amphitheatre to see a gig, a live concert, stimulating environment, thousands of people, sea of faces, watching a stage, being able to run up to the stage and see your band. The band? 1927, but please don't judge me. <laughs> I was 14, all right? So, anyway, um, you know, and you, you could go up to the stage and see your band and you'd go to the back hills and see the young teenage couples rolling around, pashing. Actually, I was one of them. But nonetheless, I had a great night. And to this day, I still really enjoy going to the amphitheatre. It's a great venue. Now, as I said, I was in year 10. So at school, the teachers were really putting the pressure on. What are you going to do when you grow up? What am I going to do when I grow up? You need to select your subjects for senior high, which is going to dictate your future. <sighs> no pressure. God. Around the same time, a friend of mine who was just about to turn 15 told me she was pregnant. Now, it's not as if I didn't know my friends were having sex. They talked about it all the time. But to have a friend who fell pregnant and wanted to keep the baby, this shook my world. I didn't really know where to go with that or what to do with that. And then, and then the Berlin Wall came down. <laughs> I mean, this significant historical event right there on our TV, and my parents were pretty good at letting my brother and, or making my brother and I aware of, of world events. But we're sitting there watching this on TV. We're hearing Gorbachev's speech. We're, we know, we're, we're there. We're watching the footage of people surging towards the wall and picking away at it and being excited. And my mum says, oh yeah, Inga, JP and the kids are there. I'm like, well, what? I'm like, well, so Inga, my mum's sister, right? So this is my auntie, uncle and cousins are at the Berlin Wall what I'm watching on TV. So it was as if I was instantly transported there. I was there. And it's probably the first time I really felt connected to something else other than my world in Darwin and Palmerston. Anyway, so there I am sitting in my room, 1989, New Year's Eve, thinking about all these things and how they'd affected me. Song comes on the radio, Prince's 1999, yeah. And I started to think, oh, this is the last decade of the millennia. This is really important. So much is going to happen. I'm going to finish high school. I'm going to turn 18. I'm going to become an adult. I'm going to live. <sighs> and then this wave came over me. I just want to be at the Edmund Street party with my friends who were there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, some of my friends went underage. Um, but apparently what they used to do is block off Edmund Street and have a stage set up 
and the bands would play and people from Squires, you could come in and out of Squires and the club, which was at the time, I believe, called 1990s. That place has had so many name changes. Yes, Fannies, Dicks, whatever. <laughs> After that, Rockets, Time Nightclub. Uh, but, you know, I was in my room listening to the radio. The next couple of years, keeping all these things in mind, I decided my last two years of high school, I was going to be studious and, um, you know, make a real go of it. Now, at the end of year 10, so end of year 89, uh, some of my school friends decided to take up trades and traineeships. At the end of year 11, more of our school friends decided that school wasn't really for them. So by year 12, there were 35 of us. Now, I went to driver high. Some people tell me that it was considered a bit of a rough school. Um, I don't know, what do you, how do you define rough? I mean, yes, I saw a lot of fights. Yes, I had friends coming in and out of Malak House, the precursor to Dondale. But I never had any problems because I had Marco, the janitor. <laughs> he was my dad. <laughs> so... Marco was loved by most and feared a little. So even if I wanted to run with the Wild Bunch, he would have known about it immediately. <laughs> anyway, more world events unfold and I become increasingly interested and I have discussions with my teachers and, and my parents. And, uh, you know, I guess this is where my humanitarian side evolved or as my friends like to call me, the hippie. And I went to my first world, my first war protest against the Gulf War in 91 in January here at Raintree Park. Uh, I was wearing my peace symbol earrings and my peace symbol t-shirt, which a friend had bought for my birthday and Christmas present, I think, because I guess they figured that's what a hippie should wear. <laughs> anyway, I was very stylish. Um, my mum came with me because she was as passionate about it as I was. So I just turned 16 and I was about to start year 12. Now, my mum, she's Dutch Indonesian, and she's from the Netherlands, so that's the link with my aunt going over to Berlin, though I lived in the Holland. Uh, and she came to Australia in the mid-60s on a working holiday. My dad, from the former Yugoslavia, uh, and he came over in the late 50s, and they met here in Darwin at East Point Hotel. So, Gulf War protest, I went. World, things started happening. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, my dad left Yugoslavia because he was a free spirit, really. He loved to watch movies and he loved the idea of travel. So he left Yugoslavia and he came to Australia and made his way up to Darwin to become a croc hunter. Uh, here he, he met a lot of other Yugoslavs. Now, I grew up not really knowing the difference between the Slavs, as we like to call them. Uh, I didn't know about any ethnic differences. In 1991, mid-year, halfway through year 12, Croatia and Slovenia declared independence from Yugoslavia. Now, Dad had predicted this back when we were watching the Berlin Wall. He said more things are to come, and he predicted the demise of his own country. A couple of days after this event, Slovenia and Croatia declaring independence, my dad was down, I think, pretty sure it was Kavanagh Street, and he saw his friend, uh, one of the Slavs that he'd met, a Croatian man, and he waved to say hello and perhaps have a conversation. His friend was with his son and his friend turned to his son and said something and immediately crossed the road. They never spoke again. 
Now, Dad was relaying this story later that night to us and it was, he was visibly upset and I was confused, to be honest, because I'd grown up with this man in my life. I mean, this man had been practically like a brother to my father. So it was as if this breakup of Yugoslavia was the breakup of a trusted friendship for my father. As the Balkans intensified, I watched my father fall apart as he watched his country fall apart. And, you know, he would obsessively watch the news, read the papers, compare the Western news with the other news he was receiving from, say, the Serbian newspapers, etc. And he would talk about these discrepancies in the media. And I didn't know what to believe. So I kind of got it in my head that I needed to go there. I needed to go to Bosnia. But how? I mean, <laughs> I actually didn't know my family there. Uh, and Dad was really the key to that. And how could I say, hey, Dad, so I want to go over to Bosnia and check this out. What do you reckon? It wasn't going to happen. It was too painful for him. He'd already lost people. He'd read the articles. He'd lost friends that he'd grown up with, etc. So I just kind of banked that. In high school, I developed an interest in photography. Uh, and so for university, I decided I would enrol in a Bachelor of Fine Arts majoring in photography here at Northern Territory University. Now, this course was great because the people that were enrolled mostly were mature-age students. There were only three of us that were straight out of high school. So I got to have this great wealth of information, these life experiences from people. And I really enjoyed their stories. But I also met other people, and I ended up around my age, and I ended up having a really good eclectic mix of friends, and the parties got wackier and wackier. And I kept saying, I'm going to go to Bosnia. I got it in my head during these years that perhaps the way to get to Bosnia was to become a war photographer. <laughs> so, you know, why not? This is a legitimate way to get to Bosnia. And that way I could sort of, you know, say to Dad, hey, it's my job. But I didn't really know how that was going to happen either. So instead, I took up skydiving, fell in love, packed a backpack and went travelling. And I went to Canada, I worked in the States, I worked in Guatemala, I went to Mexico, Cuba, Turkey, Bulgaria, uh, the UK, Netherlands. I was so geographically close to Bosnia, but I still couldn't get there. And this really bothered me. I felt like I had failed on my mission. So on my way back to Australia, I drove around the East Coast and up through the centre. And uh, on that trip, I wrote a letter to my father. Now, I'd never actually expressed my interest in going to Bosnia to my dad because I knew it was too painful. So I wrote this letter explaining, hey, I went to all these great countries, some of which you wanted to go to, but I still haven't made it to your home country and this is really important to me. And now I, I need your support. So I posted the letter, made my way up through the centre, arrived in Tennant Creek. I had some friends living there at the time. So I stayed a couple of nights, checked in with the family. Hey, I'm okay, you know, life on the road's great. And my dad said, I read your letter. Ah, okay. I was a little bit nervous because, you know, I wasn't sure how he was going to react. I just figured he'd think I was being silly. Uh, I said, okay, so what did you think? And he said, well... The bloody thing made me cry. Let's talk about this when you get home. I realised that my dad was now giving me permission to go back to the country that had broken his heart. And I eventually did.
That story was told by Lari Gadza at Spun, a live storytelling night held in Darwin. To hear more pieces from Spun, head to spunstories.net. For our final story, we're heading into the All the Best archives to hear sounds and stories from various contributors and their hometowns. So my name is Jules. I grew up in Buenos Aires, which is the capital city of Argentina, in a suburb called, which actually translates to little horse in English, which has nothing to do with animals or anything, but um, it was a really busy little suburb in the middle of the city. So the smells that remind me the most about my hometown would have to be definitely the smell of cars, the smell of nuts being um, toasted on the streets. That was like a, a big thing over there. It was like sugar-coated nuts. Um, that's the smell that I probably remember the most. And it's something that I carry still to this day. So whenever like the World Cup comes up, the one ritual we have with my family, apart from watching it all together, is that at three in the morning, we will toast nuts with sugar. And that smell just takes me back there. So obviously one of the things that happens when you live with so many, in like such a densely populated city, you're, you're bound to come up, you know, come across really quirky characters. My downstairs neighbour, who was convinced somehow that our apartment was above hers, and it wasn't, like my dad's an architect, And he explained to this old woman, our apartments do not clash. But um, she kept thinking in her head that every day at midday, we would be dragging a rock across our kitchen on purpose just to piss her off. And one of the things that I actually remember from my childhood is playing innocently with my brother in our tiny kitchen and then hearing this lady yelling out what would translate as rotten rats. Hey, I'm Sibella. Hometown is a bit of a tricky word for me because I grew up in three different countries. My happiest childhood memories were probably in Norway. I had a very fairy tale childhood, I think, growing up, building snowmen and running around till midnight because the sun was still up. So I grew up in a small town called Gelatin, which is on the northernmost edge of the Atherton Tablelands in North Queensland. Uh, it was a really small town. I think we had like 500 residents and it's all just like red soil and sugar cane and cows and one convenience store. And, and it was like right at the top of the one road where you get out of the town. So every time you left or came home, you'd pass the store and it was like you could get hot chips or like terrible frozen fish and fuel and that was like all that they sold and it was like the best it was it was just where everyone went every year I don't remember what month but it would be sugarcane season and for just weeks on end the whole town would smell like burnt sugar and it was great (laughs) 
All the Best is teaming up with Word Travels to present a night of live storytelling with strong stories of the week, part of Story Week 2023, featuring performances by Jared Richards, Ruth Melville, Dylan Hardcastle, and me, with live music from Elizabeth Jigolin. It's happening next Tuesday, October 3rd in Darlinghurst East Community Centre. Tickets are available from Humanitix, and for an All the Best listener discount, Use the code SWCommunity. Hope to see you there. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and ACCC on Arande and Waramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun, and Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager. Our social media producer is Isabella Lee. Patrick McKenzie is our community coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Madhura Prakash. Thanks for listening.